So um, I'm going to try to run through a bunch of stuff. So um, I'll just give a little explanation. And then, um, you know, hopefully that will satisfy your understanding and we'll be able to do what I intend to do. And um, you might feel completely out of breath when we're done. Uh, my intention is not that you would take every single line that I'm going to give you, and I'll explain, because I know we're serious students about line upon line, verse upon verse, okay? But what I want to do is address a couple of issues. Uh, there are a number of uh, uh, versions of the Bible that uh, leave off in Mark chapter 16 at, uh, you know, like verse 13, uh, w where everyone is still just left with fear and the Great Commission isn't given. And, uh, you know, the scholars try to say that that's the appropriate place to end this passage. That's incorrect. Um, and then there are those that uh, throughout the scripture, but in particular in regard to resurrection, uh, they they attack the resurrection in the biblical account uh, very strongly. And one of the sh you know strong arguments, and I, I shouldn't say that it's a good one. It's just that they're very insistent upon it. Is that all of the different accounts uh, nullify uh, the resurrection account? You know, John says it this way, Mark says it that way, Luke says it this way as though that somehow made it inaccurate. So what I want to do is just open up Mark chapter 16, uh, get to the point of resurrection, and then I'm going to jump over and take us through the order that resurrection occurred in when you put all of the gospel accounts together one after the other in the order that they actually occurred. And it'll, it corrects itself when, when you listen to it. It's, it's just different people's experiences throughout the day. So Mark chapter 16, verse one. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So there's your introduction from Mark. Uh, they had followed uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus when they had taken Jesus' body from the cross and laid it in the tomb. It is afterward that the Jews come to Pilate and say, this deceiver has said that he would rise from the dead, and so we want a guard. And he gives them 16 Roman soldiers to go and put the Roman official cords and wax upon the stone, putting Rome's emblem upon it, the seal of Rome, so that if anyone interferes with it, uh, they can be put to death for touching the tomb and breaking the seals. So they return, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, Salome, and they're going to anoint Jesus' body. How are they going to do that? We don't really know. The stone weighs five tons, okay? Um, now, five tons. Let's get a picture in that. When you're driving down the road and they have those giant concrete barriers in the center of the road, that's two tons. So two and a half of those combined are in front of this tomb. And, you know, then the lie comes up that, the, the apostles came and in the middle of the night while we were asleep silently rolled a five-ton stone out of the way and stole the body. You know how easy that is to do. So anyway, <clears throat> jumping into Sunday morning, okay, the stone's already out of the way. It's already been moved. So Matthew chapter 28 verses 2 through 4, you're going to have to follow these references if you want a copy. I'll give this to you when I'm done. I'm just going to go through the occurrences according to the scripture. An angel rolled away the stone from Jesus' tomb before sunrise. Max Licato wrote that brilliant book, He Still Moves Stones, uh, presenting the idea that the stone was not moved so that Jesus could get out. Jesus was already gone. And we see Jesus after this point passing in and out of rooms at will. He appears and disappears. Uh, he wasn't trapped in the tomb, banging on the stone, waiting for somebody to let him out. The stone was moved 
so that Mary and Salome and the others could see in to the tomb. So we here through these passages could see into the tomb. Okay. So the stone was moved for us, not Jesus. So the stone was rolled away. Secondly, women who followed Jesus visited Jesus' tomb and discovered him missing. You get that from Matthew 28, verse 1, Mark 16, 1 through 4, which we just read, Luke 24, 1 through 3, and John 20, verse 21. Okay, I'm going to give you each of these and all of their references that I can. After that, the third occurrence was Mary Magdalene left to tell Peter and John. Okay, so she's come to the tomb, but now she leaves. John 20, verses 1 and 2. The other women remaining at the tomb saw two angels who told them about the resurrection. Matthew chapter 28, 5 through 7. There are some who especially dwell on that point that only one angel was seen and then others saw two. Well, that's just it right there. Some people experienced one angel's presence. Others experienced two angels because of when they were at the tomb. So they have different experiences in that. Matthew 28, verses 5 through 7. Mark 16, 5 through 7. Luke 24, verses 4 through 8. Uh, news taken by Mary to Peter and John. They visit the tomb. You see that in Luke 24, verse 12. John 20, Verses 3 through 10. Uh, sixth, Mary Magdalene returns to the tomb and Jesus appears to her alone in the garden. Most of us are familiar with that interchange where he speaks to her. She mistakes him as the gardener. Uh, she then refers to him as Rabboni. That comes from Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 11 and John 20, verses 11 through 18. And that's actually his first appearance. Okay. So the tomb and the revealing and the angels and the communication has begun, but that's the first appearance of Jesus to anyone. Seventh, Jesus appeared to other women, Mary, mother of James, Salome, Joanna is mentioned in Matthew chapter 28, verses eight through 10. That's his second appearance. Uh, those who guarded Jesus' tomb reported to the religious rulers how the angel rolled away the stone. They were then bribed, paid large sums of money, and told to lie about the apostles coming. Uh, I'll dwell on that for just a moment, right? Sixteen soldiers sent to the tomb to guard the tomb. If they were found where any one of their party was asleep, they were all put to death. All of them, okay? If they failed at their duty and then, say, fled, knowing that they were going to be executed, they would go to the village or the town that those soldiers were from and kill everyone in that town. Everyone. And, and that happened on a number of occasions. Uh, so they understood the threat that was there. If you were in that party as one of the 16 soldiers, and you fell asleep, uh, you often see Roman soldiers depicted as wearing that metal-clad skirt with the red underlayment, they would take a torch and light your underwear on fire. You're going to wake up at that point, you know what I'm saying? So uh, sleeping, they would set you ablaze. Why? Because their lives are at stake for you having fallen asleep. So the thought that they fell asleep is ridiculous. The account where they were given the bribe, Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. Ninth occasion, Jesus appeared to Peter. We actually get that record from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5. We have other vague descriptions, but specifically we are told that, and it is his third appearance uh, that we have recorded there. That's all Sunday morning, okay? Sunday afternoon, Jesus appeared to two men on the road to Emmaus. Surely we remember that. I'm really upset with them that they didn't record any of the Bible study that Jesus gave them because it says that beginning in Genesis, extending all the way through Malachi, Jesus explained every occurrence in the Old Testament that referred to him himself. Just you'd want some of those details, you know, so hopefully they'll be offering that class 
when we arrive in the presence of the Lord. It's certainly a study that I want to have. I say that in jest, right? And we will know as we are known, right? So, okay, but anyway, the things that I want to learn. Mark chapter 16, verses 12 and 13 record that, the road to Emmaus. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 32, and that was his fourth appearance there. Sunday evening, the two disciples from Emmaus told others they saw Jesus, Luke 24, verses 33 through 35, and then the twelfth occasion, Jesus appeared to ten apostles with Thomas absent. Judas has killed himself. Thomas is not present in the upper room. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 43. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 25. That was his fifth appearance. The following Sunday, one week uh, later, Jesus appeared to the 11 apostles, this time including Thomas, and Thomas believed, recorded in John chapter 20, verses 26 through 28. That would be Jesus' sixth appearance uh, after his resurrection at that point. Now I'll just cluster the following 32 days after that, because he was here for 40. Jesus appeared to seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee and performed a miracle of fish recorded in John 21, verses 1 through 14. Uh, they were fishing, caught nothing. He makes the statement, cast the net on the other side. They pull it in. They can't pull the fish. They take it ashore. Peter draws it ashore. Jesus restores Peter there as they share breakfast together. John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. And then... The 15th occurrence, Jesus appeared to 500 at one time, including the 11, at a mountain in Galilee. Uh, don't listen to the scholars. They all want to argue about what mountain that is, and we honestly don't know. Okay, he, he said, I'll meet you at the mountain. They'd been at the mountain so many times with him that they knew which mountain he was talking about, and they went there, and they met him. Okay, so, you know, you know how that is when you say to one of your friends, you know, something that you both understand. So it was with Jesus and the apostles. That is recorded in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. I told you you were going to be out of breath. Okay, so Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. It's also recorded in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 18. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. That would be his eighth appearance that we're referring to there. Uh, 16th occurrence in order, Jesus appeared to his half-brother James, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. That would be his ninth appearance. At Jerusalem, number 17, Jesus appeared again to his disciples, Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 49, and also Acts chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Uh, that was his 10th appearance. And then, of course, number 18, Jesus ascended into heaven while his disciples watched, recorded in Mark chapter 16, verses 19 and 20, Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 53, and Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. So, uh, Jesus' resurrection all the way to his ascension in order. Uh, don't be shaken. Uh, you shouldn't ever be shaken when somebody shows up and says, oh, you can't trust the Bible. Just You make the automatic assumption, I can't trust you, you know, because they're, they're a person who is criticizing something that they have no understanding of. Uh, if someone presents you with something that you've never noticed before and you're left scratching your head, uh, just continue to scratch your head. Uh, in time, almost certainly, you're going to understand what was intended and what was being said by the Lord. You have to kind of assume that a document that God claims to have written would be, on, be beyond your capacity of understanding. Uh, you know, so the Bible is extraordinarily complex and something that is very difficult at times for us to grasp, especially uh, follow this line, uh, when you take a book that its first portions were written in Aramaic, translate that into Hebrew, 
later translate it into Greek, right? Later translate it into Latin, divert a big portion of it off into German, right? Bring that back into Latin and then translate it into English. There's going to be some flaws in how all of that works together. You want to know what it really said in the very beginning? Well, you've got to learn Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. <clears throat> and people have done it just in order to understand the scriptures. Uh, you guys like pastor's perspective or what used to be, uh, you know, to every man an answer. Don Stewart, when he reads and you're listening to him read the Bible, he's reading from Greek and from Hebrew and transliterating it as he reads it to you. So when you're listening to him, he's not reading from a King James Bible. He's not reading. He's 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 translating it to you. Uh, that lends to a very accurate understanding when you take that approach to understanding the scripture. So back to Mark chapter 16, we'll examine this passage and we'll see how far we get this evening. Listen, <clears throat> I was sweltering in the heat. I don't know about you guys. So I walked out back and just shut all of the boilers down. Okay? With that, the windows are open right now. So the temperature may now plummet into the Arctic realm, which I will be very happy with, and you will all be teeth chattering. So we'll see how it goes. <clears throat> Just trying to keep you on your toes. Don't want you to get too comfortable, you know. Next thing you know, you're going to want to, you know, recliner and who knows what else. So uh, we're just, uh, we're living with what we have. That's what, that's what we're doing. Mark chapter 16, I'm going to back up just a couple verses to verse 1. Put it in context again. Now, when the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might come and anoint him. So a few things to examine. There were two holy days that the Jews always refer to as Sabbaths. So when the Jews are experiencing a religious holiday, they always refer to that as a Sabbath also. So you, you had Passover, which took place, which Jesus was crucified. And there's the confusion that is generated because they're saying we need to take care of this before the Sabbath. And everybody tries to make that Saturday. So then they're saying, well, Jesus was then crucified on Friday. Good Friday. Okay, well... The Sabbath that they were preparing for was not actually the, the Saturday Sabbath. It was Passover. So we can go through a number of things, and I'm probably wrong, but by best calculations, it was probably Good Wednesday, okay? And then uh, three days and three nights in the tomb include Saturday. He's out of the tomb before Sunday morning. The, the stone has been rolled away. So the Sabbath that they're referring to at that point is the Saturday. And that is completed and the stone is moved and Jesus is now out of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome brought spices. Uh, you know, you got to wonder what Salome was going through in this whole process. James and John, her sons, she's made the request that they be given positions of authority on his right hand and his left hand when he enters his kingdom. They're totally thinking when you set up your earthly government, we want the boys to be on your right hand of power and your left hand of power. You know, I don't know what we're, you know, vice Messiah and uh, secretary of state or something. Literally, this is the idea of what she's thinking of. Can these guys have the two highest positions of power in your kingdom? Okay, two disappointments for her. One, Jesus doesn't set up an earthly government. He's crucified. That's going to be a massive crash and burn for her heart and mind. Yet, she's at the crucifixion. And now she's at the tomb. 
Is there a realization that he is entering his kingdom as he dies? She probably heard Jesus say to the thief on the cross, I tell you that today you'll be with me in paradise. Right? Remember me when you come into your kingdom, the thief said. I tell you that today you'll be with me in paradise. Was she thinking, oh, my land, I was hoping that my sons would be on his right hand and his left hand. And right now, two men are being crucified at his right hand and his left hand. Now she's come to the tomb with these others. Uh, they saw the stone put in place. Okay. Uh, the thought that they could move the stone is impossible. Uh, they're, they're not going to be capable of moving the stone out of the way. The seal was set on the stone after they left. The Jews went to the leadership and asked for the seal and the guards after Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had laid him in the tomb. Uh, so they're not aware that there's a Roman seal on the stone. They, they're just thinking, I don't know about you guys, I have a wife who tackles projects that she's never capable of accomplishing. Just, you know. We sometimes refer to them as we projects. You know, She'll say, you know what we should do? And really what she means is, you know what you should do, you know, and then I have to take care of it. They, they go to the tomb. My mom does the same thing. They go to, I'll throw her into the bus because she's here, you know. So, so um, they go to the tomb with that hopeful expectation that somehow they're going to be able to further honor Jesus and anoint his body in this way. It was actually a common practice uh, to go and, and lay flowers and lay ointment on the body as part of the honor uh, for who this person was. Very early in the morning, as we said, on the first day of the week, uh, because it was the Sabbath and they were supposed to rest so they don't get to go to the tomb religiously, legally, until the sun begins to rise. So now they're going in uh, the dawning of the first day of the week, and that's our day of worship, Sunday. And this is why it's our day of worship. I'm not going to take you to Colossians chapter 2 and read to you beginning in verse 16, where Paul says, let no man judge you in food or in drink or in new moons or Sabbaths. And his explanation where these things are a shadow of the substance, which was Jesus, and they are an element of false humility in self-imposed religion, which have no effect on the indulgence of the flesh. Okay? Uh, it, it is useless religion. You're going to run into people in your walk with the Lord who say, you know, you don't go to church on Saturday? You know, I thought you were a real believer. And you are a real believer. The church immediately started worshiping on Sunday. And then when the Gentiles became part of the church, they only worshipped on Sunday. And then shortly after that, all of Christianity, including the Jews, abandoned Saturday worship and only worshipped the Lord on Sunday. The, the conflict grows until Acts chapter 15 about what's going to be required of the Gentiles. And the summary that is discovered by James and all of the apostles, is that they're not going to require anything of the Gentile believers except that they abstain from sexual immorality and from idolatry. Those two elements must be observed by anyone that calls themselves a believer. So Saturday worship is uh, beneficial for the people that can only worship on Saturday. And that's fine for them, just the same as it is fine for us to worship on Sunday. And if you only get... Wednesday's off and that's your church day, that's good for you too, right? Paul said we each need to be thoroughly convinced in our own hearts, okay? So there is no obligation as per the day. God isn't sitting with his list of believers and crossing names off of you. Hey, listen, okay, as much as our friends in the Seventh-day Adventist movement say, oh, it's not necessary, their organization has also published a booklet that is called The Mark of the Beast, 
where in that book they insist that Sunday worship is the mark of the beast. So they say it's not necessary, and they say it's not part of their doctrine, but then they make it part of their belief and their doctrine. Okay? So some of them may be our brothers and love the Lord very sincerely, but we don't have to be concerned about that day of the week. Okay? Everybody with me there? All right. So they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? See, now we're getting to the issue, right? Who brought the lever, you know, is what they're sort of thinking. What are we going to do? Um, make note of that, because sometimes you might make plans, uh, or you might be with somebody in leadership, in ministry, who says, let's go do the thing for the Lord. And then when you get to the moment where it's going to be accomplished, you're left going, now, how in the world are we going to accomplish this? The Lord, if he goes before you and leads, will make it possible. Trust what the Lord is leading in those circumstances. They were going to go. When they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large, as I said, based upon several elements. One of the things I didn't do is if you progressively go through the Gospels and the description of how the stone was moved, it starts out with the idea of shoved effortlessly out of the way. That's how the, the first a description puts in, and you go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. By the time you know, you, then it, then it's sort of thrown aside, and you're like, "Gosh, five tons! Wow, that's pretty cool." By the time you get to the last description, this thing's a frisbee, like gone. You know what I'm saying? It, it's interesting how the scripture reveals to us uh, what it is that the Lord is doing, and it, it seems to be that that sort of they arrive and like, "Gosh, where is the stone?" You know what I'm saying? Is a, oh my word, look way down there. Look at the skid mark. You know, I just this this is sort of the way the scripture reveals this to us. So, you know, when things stand in your way, right? You pray and the mountain gets moved. Okay, along the way. And uh, our understanding becomes more complete. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Okay. Uh, yes, the shock of someone sitting in the tomb, right? You know, it doesn't matter what their countenance is like. When you don't expect someone to be there and you round the corner and someone's there, right? It'll suck the air right out of your lungs, won't it? You know, that could be in your own house and you're just muttering to yourself, right? And you turn around and, oh, I didn't know you were standing there. These are startled because of the unexpected appearance, but also his clothing is such that it glistened, okay? It, it had a brilliance of appearance. The way it's described in the Greek language is embroidered with a glistening appearance that bore official insignia, okay? So there, there's person... In the tomb, no wings are mentioned. Did you see that? Okay. So uh, there is a person in the tomb who is apparently an angel whose appearance and his countenance and his vesture, his robes, uh, leave you with the understanding at a single glance that this is a person of official capacity. That they that this, this isn't, you know, sort of like name badge and, you know, amulets on the shoulders and who knows what this means but it's the idea of this this person has come you know his rank is almost implied in the way that it's being described you know militaristic uniform is uh, is the sense of things you know glistening in its appearance so his his uh, white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed now some people take separate accounts from the scripture couple them together and try to make this the mercy seat. So you have the Ark of the Covenant, you have an angel on each end, and they try to say, well, look, the blood of Jesus Christ was offered on Golgotha. Okay, It, it wasn't brought into this tomb and poured out here on Jesus' burial location. 
so that's a difficult thing to do. We do have the account of two angels at the tomb here. Only one is recorded in this instance. He said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, a couple of things about this we get from other descriptions in the Gospels. First of which is they seem to be unable to talk. And the angel takes over the conversation one more time, apparently for us, so that it gets recorded in the scripture. I know what you're here for. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I just want to let you know he's not here. This is the place where he was. When he says, see where he lain, the other gospels tell us that his burial clothes were there. And the way it is written in the Greek language tells us that they were in the shape of his body. Okay. So it's not as though Jesus came to his consciousness and found himself wrapped up in this thing and freaked out because of claustrophobia and had to get himself out of this. The way it is described seems that he disappeared from the grave clothes. Now, one element within it that is very interesting is the scriptures elsewhere record that the cloth that was over his head was folded and laying next to the burial clothes. If you're not familiar with it, to this day, if someone is murdered in Israel, they cover their face as soon as they possibly can. They lay a covering over their head to keep the family from having to see that in photographs or otherwise, and to cover the shame of the violence of their death. Okay, they cover their head and that head covering stays with the body until it is laid to rest. Okay, so Jesus apparently came out of the burial clothes and brought the head covering with him. So there's some interesting elements to all of this. Now, another thing, I don't want to be a big promoter of the Shroud of Turin. I certainly don't want to encourage any worship of the shroud or anything of that nature. But I'll just say very blatantly, I think that the shroud of Turin is in fact the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. There are many elements about it that uh, are way worth your time to examine. Uh, the, the examination that has been done of that is very, very extensive. Uh, it has had many different occasions of examination and many different methods. Uh, the blood that's on it is in fact human blood. It is blood, number one. The staining is blood and it is human blood. That's very interesting to consider that the people who did blood tests may have actually been handling the blood that saved all of the human race. That's remarkable to consider. Um, his wounds are from a scourging from a crucifixion and from thorns plated into his head on a crown of thorns all the way around. Coins that were laid upon his eyes when he was bound, which was both Jewish and Roman tradition, bore the year of date that Jesus was crucified. So they couldn't have been put there prior to it, right? It has to have been at least uh, that year. All of the flowers and herbs that were around him were in bloom in Israel at that very time that Jesus was crucified. Not before, not after. So very interesting and significant. Many other elements about it. Um, the image that you commonly see, when if you've ever seen pictures of the shroud, is actually a two-part photographic image that is burned into the fabric. Now, if you look at fabric, right, it's cylindrical, right? It is, you know, round. Uh, the burn on that is only on the surface on one side. Nearly impossible to accomplish under any circumstances. Uh, the scientists that have examined it have said that the burns occurred from an unknown light source radiation. 
So consider that. Not radioactive, but radiating light that only burned one surface of the fabric. And they were really startled to discover that the image is three-dimensional. Effortlessly. When you put the image into three-dimensional models, it automatically models itself to three-dimensionality. It was wrapped around him, so you get a three-dimensional image. <clears throat> the first image is that you may have seen uh, the person that was in the burial cloth looks very gaunt, extremely thin. Then other images, as they sort of uh, move up through the resolution, uh, looks like he's extremely healthy, stout, almost athletic. And so they go back and forth through this, and then they realize, oh, there are two images here. We're looking at very, very thin, oh, wait a minute, X-ray skeletal. They can separate the two. And you can see the skeletal X-ray that has been burned in the image. And you go, why? If, if it is the Lord's, why would he do that? Not one single broken bone, right? They have an x-ray of his entire body, whoever this person was, and there's not a single broken bone, including his wrists, where the holes are for the spikes that went through. They can see clearly where the metacarpal nerve was and how the thumb folded over as a result of that. So, Consider, you know, all of these things, miracles that occurred, the shroud itself was taken, and the head covering was kept, and it was taken to individuals who were sick and dying. When it touched their body, they were instantly made well. Some of them had been so sick for so long that they had lost consciousness days earlier and were unaware that the shroud was even being brought to them, and the moment that the shroud touched them, they were completely well. Like, stand up, walk around, get back to work well, healed completely. So, that's much farther than I intended to go with this whole thing. <clears throat> Here, see where his body is, you know, was laid. So, th this, this uh, implication that is given to them. Verse 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter. Look, uh, don't, don't miss that point. Go and tell his disciples and make sure Peter that no, no, why? Because almost assuredly, Peter is thinking at this point, uh, I am finished, right? We read through uh, his denial of Jesus Christ, and there in his denial, he pronounces a curse upon himself that's so strong that, well, forgive me, parents, it's actually, you know, from a worldly point of view, rated R. He says, may I be eternally damned if I know the man. He pronounces a curse upon himself. When it says he cursed and denounced him, he cursed himself when he renounced Jesus. Luke tells us that as those words came out of his mouth, they brought Jesus into the courtyard and he made eye contact with him. That would pierce your soul right there. To be in the midst of renouncing Jesus and make eye contact with him. Uh, when we read that after this, Peter says, I'm going back to fishing. Right? He had a very large business with employees working for him. Boats, plural. Nets, plural. Employees, plural. Fishing business. He fails this badly in his own mind, and he says to everyone that's with him, I'm going fishing. It's literally, I'm going back to fishing. I've failed at the ministry, and I'm going back to my old method of earning a living. Jesus meets him there, right? And we've talked about it already, John 21, and tells him to cast his nets on the other side, and they haul up the fish. And Jesus restores him on the shores. Here, the Lord makes the point of tell the apostles and make sure you tell Peter also. Look, if I'm Peter and I get word that Jesus sent a messenger to us and told us to tell the apostles, and he also told us to make sure to tell you, I'm thinking my name is Mud. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, that's him, that's him calling me into the office. I'm going to be beyond fired when this is done. I'm just, you know, I'm probably going to receive my eternal judgment. He hasn't been restored yet. He, he's getting this word 
that basically Jesus is looking for him. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee to the mountain, and there you shall see him as he said to you. There's a bunch of as he said to you that they miss completely. I'm encouraged by that because the Lord says to me all the time lots of different things, and I miss it. And it's not until after the fact that I go, oh, yeah. The Lord did tell me to watch out for that, to avoid that, to drop everything and go do that. And I am, man, I am slow on the draw. Uh, So weren't all of the people that Jesus chose. There were a few of them that were sharp as tacks. Go before them into Galilee. Verse 8, so they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And that's where most of the translations end. <laughs> Why would you end there? You know, literally, they have all these other verses, but they end right there. When questioned, they include in their commentaries that, well, the original manuscripts only contain up to verse 8. Look, lean as hard as you can on the wrong answer button. Just, meh, that's No one has original manuscripts. The original manuscripts only contain to verse 8. Really? You have original manuscripts. No one has original manuscripts. Why would you say that? Okay, as I said before, the Great Commission is contained in the remainder of this. Go ye therefore into all the world, make disciples of all men. Why, Why would you leave that off? Why would you leave the rest of this chapter off? Well, the best manuscripts... Oh, the best manuscripts. So we're using inferior manuscripts as we read the whole of God's word. No, that's not true either. Even in the multitude of manuscripts that we have, they do this all the time, right? They find a manuscript or a few that don't have this and they go, well, clearly we should have left off much earlier. So we won't include that. You know where they do that a lot is in the book of Revelation. They change all kinds of things about the book of Revelation, and they'll commonly say it's because the best manuscripts don't contain these verses. Right? <clears throat> I'll give you one total deviation from our resurrection study here. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Everyone that is there declaring the power and glory of God says we were saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, well, if that's the we that is the we, then the church is in heaven. That is one of the most strong passages of Scripture declaring pre-tribulation rapture that the church could possibly lay their hands on. Uh, All of the modern scholars change that to say, uh, no, no, it should say they said this. Okay? Not, not we said this. They said this. If it says we, then that's the church. and We can't do that. So let's make it say something other than that. When questioned on it, the response from them was to say that only 29 of the manuscripts of the book of Revelation contain the word we. And you're left thinking like, oh, well, I, I had no idea. Only, only 29 of them. What they don't tell you is there's only, there's only 30 that contain chapter 5. So out of 30, 29 say we. One does not. And then they go, well, see, we need to leave it out. You, you really got to wonder about what the motivation is in changing these passages of Scripture. Okay? NIV, right? I read from it all the time. It does read very nicely. It is easy to study from, but it's grossly inaccurate. Okay? Keep in mind, right? Rupert Murdoch owns the copyright to the NIV. Rupert Murdoch owns Fox News. Rupert Murdoch also owns Penthouse Magazine. Why would we trust the publisher? of a pornographic magazine to the publication of the Bible. It is a really treacherous thing to consider. 
You know, the ease and comfort of reading the NIV was created by a woman who at the time was living in a homosexual partnership. She was living in rebellion, open rebellion to the Bible she was in the process of translating and making it very easy for us to read. I, I use the NIV for the purpose that it is very easy to read from. And often it does lend us greater understanding. Boy, we got to be careful about why we use what we use. Here, right, you have a continuation beyond verse 8 that is very necessary for us to study and read. i got three hours of notes and 15 minutes to do it in, so let's see what we can accomplish here. I think I'm going to be able to complete it. Verse 9, now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Listen, <clears throat> she was quite a gal, seven demons. That must have been, you know, life of the party, as they said. Who knows what Mary was like. There are those that say that she was a prostitute also. We actually don't have any biblical evidence of that. Where that is most commonly taught is mistaking the anointing of Jesus with the fragrant oil by Mary with the anointing of oil by a prostitute at a separate meal in a separate town. Right? Teachers very often make those one and the same, and they're not. Okay, So she was uh, you know, delivered from seven demons. That would make you love Jesus profoundly. Okay, and, and maybe someone who was demonically possessed was also living in a profoundly immoral lifestyle. That's quite possible, but the scripture doesn't teach us that. That's all I want us to understand, okay? Uh, that we shouldn't promote that concept from a biblical point of view. Verse 10, she went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. Only Peter and John bolted for the tomb, right? Everyone else is filled with with sorrow, thinking that his body has been stolen. And what happened to Jesus? There isn't that hopeful expectation of he's resurrected. This is amazing. They even record that they think that Mary and the others are actually insane or that they're lying and they're making up a story. Uh, we declare them to be faithful. We criticize doubting Thomas, as we often say, right? But honestly, uh, I think we're probably in a similar class of person and conduct. Very human, what we're witnessing. When they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Oh, if you don't believe somebody, you're calling them a liar, right? They don't believe her. After that, he appeared to another from uh, two Two of them, as they walked, appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. This is the road to Emmaus. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. You know, the just shall live by faith. <laughs> They're not presently at that point. It's interesting how they struggling. It's interesting what tragedy will do to your heart. You, you can be on top of the world ready to take on giants and you experience a tragedy such as this and it takes the wind out of all of your sails. Everything. You, you just, you become Eeyore. Just nothing good's going to happen. It's all going to be bad. The one dark cloud proves that to me. And you can drag your knuckles for a long time so consider again be encouraged because if you've been that person and you think of yourself as lesser you know uh, i i struggle to believe i struggle with my faith you know i get hit by dark things and i fall out of the sky i just you know yeah like i said you're in good company there are many recorded in the scripture who struggle to control their emotions. We need to learn to do that. We do need to learn to do that. The weapons of our warfare are not of the earth. They're not fleshly. They're not carnal. But they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, that we would take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 
you got to forcibly seize a hold of your thought process sometimes. And you do that by assigning the Word of God to it. You, you hear the Lord say that verse to you, right? Philippians is painfully optimistic, right? You know, be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, right? And the, the peace which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If we will trust in faith and believe, right? You got to believe if you're going to make your requests with thanksgiving. That implies you believe the Lord is going to accomplish what you are asking. Right? James, does any of you lack wisdom? Let him ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault, but let him who asks believe and not doubt. That man should not think that he'll receive anything. Right? He's unstable in all of his ways, blown and tossed like the waves of the sea. So we do have to seize control of our hearts and minds. They do not believe them either. Verse 14, later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Notice that he doesn't rebuke their disbelief that they had prior to witnesses. Their doubt at his crucifixion, their doubt at his betrayal, right? That seems somewhat natural. But when the news starts to come, from people who worship and serve Jesus Christ. He's risen. He's risen. They go, I don't think so. They doubt. They have a hardness of heart in that. And that's what he's rebuking them for. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Why? Because they're condemned already, right? And these signs will follow those who believe. Uh, they will follow those who believe. Believers should not follow these signs. That's not what this says. If you hear that this is happening in Redding, California, don't pack your junk and move there. If you hear that this is happening in Oregon, do not pack your junk and move there. Waco, Texas, don't go. Toronto, no need. Where believers are, these things will follow them. Follow them. Oh, well, you know, I grew up in Pentecostal churches and they always taught us that we should look for, you know, a firework display of supernatural spiritual experiences. You know, like what was going on in the book of Acts. Right. And just so we're clear, this church has been here for 20 years. In the 20 years we've been here, We've seen miracles. Well, the first week we were here, Steve uh, Sobel calls me from Hancock, uh, Franklin Baptist, and asks us to pray for Eleanor, an elderly woman in their church who had a stroke, fell, struck her head, laid on the floor for hours, nearly bled to death, no brain activity. She's brain dead. They flew her to Boston, and they're now gathering the family down there to say their final goodbyes. Please pray. We pray. Lord, heal Eleanor. I get a phone call the next day. Eleanor's sitting up in her hospital bed, drinking coffee, eating toast, asking the doctors when she can go home. Miracles. The Lord touches people, right? This room's full of miracles right now. I know some of you. It's more miraculous than others. The Lord touching our lives, changing us. I just taught Calvary Chapel this morning, Romans chapter 1. And there, when it talks about the power of Jesus Christ, it's talking about the changed life. The life that has been changed from a filthy, rotten sinner to a person that would come to church on a Sunday night to learn and read. That's who we are. So these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with languages. Let's be clear about that. Languages. They're not going to babble one phrase mindlessly over and over again in some vain repetition, which would be in rebellion to what Jesus said, right? Do not pray with vain repetition. And yet we teach people in the church, yeah, that's what you want to do. Find one or two words you can just repeat in a cycle, like some Eastern mantra. 
just say that endlessly. That's not what speaking in tongues is. Speaking in tongues is speaking in a foreign language. Yeah, maybe the language of angels. Paul told us that, right? Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If you've been in some of those circles, it's like a clanging cymbal, right? Years ago, my grandson, like most little kids, sitting on our kitchen floor with a copper bottom kettle and a wooden spoon, it's just bang, 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 bang. And at first, you're like, how cute. You know, generates love in your heart. He's such a, five minutes later, there's no love involved in the experience. Not on his part, not on your part. Nobody's experiencing love anymore. Because he's figured out the mechanics of the thing and he's hauling back as far as he can and he is just ringing everybody's ears in the house. A clanging noise for self-entertainment and self-recognition. Look what I can do. I can speak in tongues. Blah, 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 blah. And everybody's now paying attention to that. That's not what Christians should be looking to experience in their midst. Listen, <clears throat> I'll deviate. We've got an hour left. So, <clears throat> I'm joking. Um, <clears throat> years ago, uh, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. Speaking in tongues, speaking prophecy. You'll notice we don't do it here. In the congregational meeting, because Paul said it shouldn't be done in the congregational meeting. Whether you're aware of that or not, read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13 to 14 where he says that an unbeliever might come in and you're now speaking in tongues and they're just going to think you're crazy. So when believers are gathered together, it should be done that one, perhaps two, speaks in a tongue as long as there's someone there to interpret. If there be no interpretation, when he says, do not speak in tongues anymore, he means ever again in that group. If you are going to speak in tongues, one or two, and it needs to be that there is someone there that can interpret those tongues in order to edify the church. My wife, uh, Lord anointed her. She spoke in tongues a few times. She then understood that. She began to pray that the Lord would give her the gift of interpretation because the scripture says that that's more significant as far as the gift of tongues goes. So she begins to pray and she goes to a pastor's wives conference and there they have a meeting where they encourage the people to speak in tongues, prophesy, utilize their gifts in order according to what the scripture says. So she's praying and this woman near her begins to speak in tongues and Lori begins to pray. And as she prays, she feels as though the Lord is saying, this is what this woman is saying. Lori's so excited because she's been praying for the interpretation, that she picks up her notebook and she writes down what the woman is saying. And she even shows it to some of the other girls that are with her. Right? Keep in mind, there's like 1,200 women in this room. And so after she's written it down and showed some of the women that are there, everybody's like, oh, cool, blessed, neat. Then the Lord says to my wife, okay, now that you have the interpretation, you've got to share it with the whole room. And Lori just basically says, not going to happen. I'm throwing my wife under the bus, but I think I have her permission. And it goes back and forth between her and the Lord. <clears throat> and she digs her heels in. And she tells me that she finally just said, not going to do it. I'm not going to speak in front of these women in this room. There's too many women. I'm too embarrassed. All that. And the Lord very graciously to her heart says, okay, <clears throat> someone else will interpret that for me. They will be honored and you will learn. They'll be honored and you'll be learn. You'll learn. Lori begins a process of talking to the Lord and confession about that. And a woman across the room stands up and says, I want to interpret what that woman just said, speaking in tongues, but I need to be clear. I'm not doing it because I have the spiritual gift of interpretation. I'm doing it because she just spoke in my native tongue. And she lays out the message 
for the people in the room. And Lori picks up her notebook, and it's what she wrote on the notebook. <clears throat> she still got that. You guys, speaking in tongues is for today. The gift has not ceased, as some of our Baptist brothers insist. Some, some Baptist brothers embrace the gifts, right? But the cessationists that say the gifts have stopped, they were for a time in the past, they are not anymore. Listen, would you agree with me that one of the things the church desperately needs today is the Holy Spirit? We need to submit ourselves to God's leading. And if he says... I need you to speak in tongues. You may speak in tongues. Chuck Smith records in his book, Living Waters, that his wife spoke in a meeting in tongues. And there was a young woman there who never said anything during the meeting. They leave. Chuck's thinking no one interpreted the tongues. And he's about to say to Kay, you know, honey, the scripture says, and if you're going to speak in tongues, there needs to be interpretation. And so, but as they're going to the car, this woman comes jogging towards them. Pastor Chuck, can I speak to you? And as they step up, she says, this is my friend. And she has something she wants to share. And that young woman says to Kay, where did you learn to speak that ancient dialect of French? And Kay says, you mean when I was talking inside? Yeah, I don't speak French. Well, anyway, my grandmother raised me. She's very elderly. And like we have an old English, they have an old French, like these, thou's, thy's, they have an old French. And that's how her grandmother spoke to her. This young woman heard the plan of salvation spoken by Kay and an ancient dialect of French surrendered her life to Christ and became a Christian that night. The Lord still uses the gift of tongues. If you're running around looking for a church where everybody's babbling a phrase over and over again, you can get led astray. But if you follow the Lord with your life, simply from the position of, I want to learn, I want to grow, <clears throat> I need to be stronger, you may experience some of these things along the way. The signs will follow you. You don't follow the signs. So, in this, Jesus saying, you're going to have these things happen. You'll speak in new languages, verse 18 they will take up serpents. Now, we're not going to have a snake service here next week. Right? Fun as that would be. But, historically, you can see Paul shipwrecked on Miletus, and the snake comes out and latches onto his hand, and everybody goes, that dude is dead. Nothing happens. Right? Other attempts were made to kill religious leaders and they were poisoned and nothing happened put john in a giant vat of boiling oil right you got to understand the mockery that was there oh jesus is going to baptize you with the holy spirit and with fire oh i'll just baptize you in boiling oil emperor puts him in boiling oil and john is unaffected that freaks the emperor out so bad that he banishes him to the island of Patmos, trying to kill him through slave labor. Okay. These things, right? If they drink anything deadly, it will not by no means hurt them. If they lay hands on the sick, they will recover. Uh, I have prayed for people, and the Lord has healed them. I've prayed for people, and they've died. So you weigh out whether you want me to pray for you. <laughs> It's the Lord who heals, right? Not the person who prays. Again, holding Chuck Smith as the example, in the late 80s, a family brought their very elderly father <clears throat> to a service in a wheelchair, seated him down front. And he's very visually expressive throughout the service. And Chuck can tell he's making a real connection with the old guy. And they finish up and the family wheels him up front and Chuck, thinking that he's so excited about the Lord and what's going on, the man says, you know, I want to be prayed for, that I would be healed. And, and the family says, yes, our father needs prayer. Chuck, no hesitation, anoint with oil, lay hands on, pray fervently, Lord, raise this man up, heal him. 
Get him out of this wheelchair. Make him whole again. Right? Finish prayer. Take the man by the hand. Stand him right up. Everybody is shocked. He's walking around. It's not a temporary thing. Completely healed by the Lord. They confessed to him later. We brought him here because he's had a headache for like three days. We were asking you to pray for his headache. He's not gone back to the wheelchair since the prayer. You, you got to understand that's not Chuck's power, right? When, when you're aiming at the wrong target and you hit the bullseye, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> just like that's got to be the Lord. You chase these things around, you end up in places like the International House of Prayer, IHOP. Kansas City Prophet. I'm not making these names up. This is their stuff, you guys. Listening to and experiencing crazy things. Everybody's all infatuated right now. Bethel music. Oh, Bethel. We all got to go to Bethel. You understand that their pastor says that he has literally eaten the literal flesh of Jesus Christ? You understand that he says that he has the ability to communicate with the dead? You're a spiritist? You're a medium? What? Forbidden by the scripture. You chase after these things and you can end up in bad places. Follow Jesus Christ. Let these things follow you. Don't be a person who chases after these things. Let the Lord bring whatever he wants to. Lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Verse 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Why would you want to leave all of that off the end of the book of Mark? I think I see what your motivations are when I discover that. So that's our study in the book of Mark. We will hopefully begin in the book of John next week. And uh, see where the Lord leads us with that. So that's the time we have. More than the time we have. Thank you for your patience. Will you stand and we'll pray? Father God, we are grateful again for this very warm church. I pray that you would continue to bless us in this place that we would follow you and experience the things that you want us to experience. We present ourselves to you as empty vessels, very willing to be used by you, filled by you, delivering you to the sick and dying world around us. Speak to us clearly about your desires for our intentions, our purposes, and our actions. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.